Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit betterhelp.com. That's better h-e-l-p dot com slash psych explained and join the over one million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals and there's a special offer for my psychology concepts explained listeners you can get 10 percent off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psych explained You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello, this is Dr. C. Welcome back to another psychology lecture. And this lecture will be based on Chapter 2. And the subject is psychological research. And I am narrating over the... PowerPoint slide provided by the second edition of the textbook Psychology from OpenStax. That's OpenStax with an X at the end. And you can find a free psychology textbook there to read online at OpenStax.org. Okay, class, um, this uh, chapter will be broken up into two parts, so consider this part one. And the focus is going to be on the scientific aspect of psychology. These early chapters in an introduction to psychology class are laying the foundation for a mindset that we'll use for the rest of the course and hopefully the rest of your life, okay? Um, So we'll be learning how psychologists conduct research, how you can use this information about, and your understanding about how research works to understand the everyday research you find in articles in the news that you hear about every day. 
Okay, so let's move on. And uh, again, some of these PowerPoint slides have a lot of information. It's just up to you to read about it. But we're talking here about why research is important. Now, think of not so much as research is important, but the way of thinking and how to make sense of information is important. So it's helpful for us everyday people to think like scientists. Okay, um, So let's talk about why scientific research is important. And it's not just about a he said, she said kind of thing. We can argue back and forth about whether the world is flat or the world is round just based on our own personal experience, but that's not scientific. Okay, So what do people mean by scientific research? I'm sure you have some of this background already, I hope. One key word I'm going to focus on is the word empirical. Scientific research is empirical. So what does empirical mean? Oftentimes this word is paired with the word evidence. Science is composed of empirical evidence, and those would be the journal articles you find in the scientific journals, including psychology. So empirical evidence is objective evidence. Okay, It's information, data that's been studied, measured, right, and gone through the process of the scientific method. Okay, so that's kind of lame. I, I gave the definition of science using the word science, okay, but you, you really shouldn't do that. Um, but it's the opposite of subjective opinion, okay? So we need to contrast the word objective versus intuition, which is our gut feeling about something, assumptions we have, Right. Uh, for example, we can debate all day long about what the uh, accident rate, car accident rate is per year in a particular city. Right. That's just conjecture. That's just guessing. It's is using our intuition, using our memory. It's not really scientific data. Right. But. If you have numbers from hospitals and police departments and traffic cams, then you really can uh, have a more objective measure. Let's say that in the news there's a report that somebody, an eyewitness, witnessed a, a UFO flying in the sky, right? A flying saucer. Well, if you were a news organization, would you trust one eyewitness? Um, they could be honest. They may not be, right? Is that objective evidence? One person seeing something? Would you believe it more if a hundred different people who don't know each other living in different neighborhoods happen to report the same thing around the same time, right? Not just forwarding something or sharing something they saw on social media, but actually recording it themselves or reporting it themselves, that would be more objective, right? So there are many ways to gain objective information that's more trustworthy. So it's more systematic. So that's the kind of evidence we're talking about. It's empirical evidence that's gathered in a systematic way, okay? So many fields of science use this process, and psychology, even though we're studying humans and human behavior, also uses that process, okay? So although we may not be so precise, for example, to know whether or not a smoking cessation program will work for every single person who signs up for it. But 
through scientific measurement and study, we can have a very strong educated guess or approximation that roughly, let's say, 50% of people who participate in this kind of quit smoking program will actually be helped by it, right? Okay, so what you want to take away from this point is that psychology is a science based on empirical evidence, which is objective, which is stronger evidence, more trustworthy evidence than just subjective intuition or a single person's eyewitnessing of something. All right, so here are some examples of everyday instances where uh, people might be claiming something is scientific when in fact it's really not, right? Um, and so here are some, on this slide, some basic questions you can ask yourself. And this is all part of critical thinking, okay? Thinking scientifically is thinking critically. And what does that really mean? Being a scientific thinker doesn't mean you know a lot of facts necessarily, but thinking critically means knowing what kind of questions to ask, right? So someone presents you, or even a news station presents you with information about a study that was done where a particular kind of herb might be curative for something. Um, let's talk about current events. Okay, I'm recording this in the fall of 2020 in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Right? We're going to get stories a lot about a particular cure, something that's effective against the virus. You should use this to clean your desks or, or whatever, right? Well, part of being a critical thinker isn't that you already know the answer to those things, is that you have to write, ask the right questions, right? Who is the person or organization or network providing that information? How do you know that information is objective? Is it verifiable across various sources, right? And this goes to information we, we read on social media, right? We don't always read the long-form article about something that's happening. Sometimes we just see a meme or a headline or a tweet and we go, yeah, I agree with that or oh, that makes me sick, that makes me mad and we share it, right? And little did you know, you shared something that was fabricated or was, wasn't correct. This happened all the time on social media where photos of, um, let's say, a mass grave was used in a particular country to incite violence against another group. And that photo of that mass grave was, in fact, something that happened 10 years ago in a different country, right? But no one's really checking these things, okay? So this is part of being a critical thinker instead of just accepting everything as fact only because, oh, well, it's coming from this one source, so this is the source I trust. And this goes for when you see your medical doctor as well, your family doctor, okay? Yeah, they're nice, and he or she is very friendly and very knowledgeable, went to a great university, but it's also helpful for you to double check what they say or get a second opinion sometimes. All right, so these, these two concepts are important to understand with scientific research, and it's a circular model, and the two terms are deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. Don't you just love terms that sound just alike and you're supposed to sort of make sense of them? They're easily confused, and basically what this means is that Inductive reasoning is where you have an idea, an assumption that something might be true and it leads you to study it some more, conduct research. That's called inductive reasoning, right? Now, 
it's possible that the data you've obtained from that study or survey or observation, right, you find some interesting things, and then you use deductive reasoning to take that information and create a hypothesis or a theory from that. Okay, And so this is a circular thing. You either have the idea, use inductive reasoning to conduct research on it, or just through the process of conducting research, you find some interesting things and you create new ideas from it. So this is the cycle of uh, reasoning in science. Okay, So some scientific theories come from one type of reasoning and some others come from another. Okay, And that's how scientific information evolves. So when you think of a scientific theory, it doesn't mean it's written in stone, right? Um, some things feel like they are, that they're 100% all the time in terms of a scientific finding, but it depends on whether or not new research can be found to discredit it or to slightly alter that idea. And this leads us to the next thing um, to talk about, which is comparing the words that are often confused, theory and hypothesis. A lot of people use those terms interchangeably, and that's not correct, right? A theory is actually a way of organizing a set of empirical evidence, okay, that supports this particular idea, right? So let's just use uh, something that's not very controversial, um, evolutionary theory, okay? <laughs> Nobody argues about evolution, right? Well, what's interesting about evolution is that there is, it, it's a theory meaning that there is quite a bit of empirical evidence to back up this idea that species evolve over time, over millions of years to adapt to their environment, okay? And so when people discredit it just because they don't agree with the sound of it or their own observation might be different. Um, if you really want to discredit it, you have to look for other scientific evidence that competes with that idea, okay, of how a species of animals or humans evolved over time. Is there a different explanation that could be backed up through objective observation? Okay. Now, the term hypothesis is basically a term used when someone is conducting one study, one piece of research, right? And the hypothesis is a prediction of what a science, uh, of what a scientist think is going to result from this test, okay? Um, so if they're studying two things and they're testing to whether they see it's true or not, their prediction is called a hypothesis. And I think if many people talk about, well, such and such, like climate change is a hoax and whatever, and it's a conspiracy, then if you really think about it, it's really nearly impossible to have a conspiracy within the scientific community because the process of conducting science is to actually prove, to try to prove and falsify what your prediction could be, okay? Um, and so... There have been scientists who have been caught cheating or falsifying their data, and they become discredited 
and they cannot work in academia ever again, right? So if you think about most researchers who are in university in academic institutions, their publications are seen around the world, okay? Is it possible, how can you possibly coordinate and have all of the scientists in your field have a meeting and say that we're just going to fudge numbers so it comes out to fit a particular agenda, okay? And that, that is nearly impossible to do in the field of science. Now, what's in, here's an example of Sigmund Freud and his notion that we have various levels of consciousness. We have the conscious level, pre-conscious level, and the unconscious level, the deep parts of our mind. And we have three parts of our personality called the id, ego, and superego, right? Now, what's interesting about Freud's theories is that even though they're very popular, you can use this to explain a lot of behavior, but they're not really testable. Right. They're nearly impossible to try to hypothesize and create experiments to prove whether or not there's a preconscious, whether or not there's an id or a superego at work. Right. So these, in a way, these these ideas are almost philosophical in, in nature that we have the, these different parts of our personality competing with one another. But it's almost impossible to measure these things. Okay. And that's what science needs to do in terms of research is being able to measure what is happening. All right. This, I think, is one of the more practical aspects of the beginning chapters of an intro to psych class is understanding these particular research methods. So that's a word I'd like you to know. This is research methodology. Okay. How does a scientist, like a psychologist, conduct their studies now there are you can rank them in terms of what is the most powerful form of research okay and we'll talk about that in our part two coming up but oftentimes you're not able to for whatever reason use that particular method so every scientist who chooses one of these methods that you see here and we'll talk about them one by one knows ahead of time what the strengths are of that method and what the weaknesses are in that method and they write it in their research okay so there is no perfect research methodology it's just the best that someone can use at that particular time depending on their situation or budget okay so let's start with case studies a case refers to a single person but so if there's if someone went through a very unique experience or circumstance and that person was interviewed and studied for a while right and because of how unique that experience was the information that comes from that study is called a case study okay so a case study doesn't have to be just one person you can interview a group of holocaust survivors and write a book about it, about their experiences of that very unique circumstance of how they survived and all that. And that is still a case study because it was a unique circumstance. So don't confuse the word case with just being the number of subjects that were involved. It has to do with whether, you know, the very unique circumstance or maybe they have a unique mental disorder, right? Uh, a unique birth defect, that kind of thing where it's not commonly seen, and that's where a case study can be useful, okay? So, uh, so again, 
there are advantages and disadvantages, right? The advantage is that you get a lot of interesting information from this kind of study. But then again, it's limited to people with those kinds of circumstances and conditions, right? You can't really say that, oh, what I learned from patient X, I can apply to everybody. You can't do that. All right. Um, another method is naturalistic <clears throat> observation. All right. So this is pretty much, <clears throat> excuse me, what it sounds like where kind of like where you have hidden cameras or traffic cams or, you know, this is where we try to study natural or genuine behaviors where the people being observed don't know they're being observed, right? So typically that has to be done in a very public kind of place, um, like with traffic cams or with security cameras, right? Try to observe people. And if the observation becomes too intrusive, then you have to get approval from those individuals that ahead of time that they're going to be observed, such as if it's in the workplace, for example, you have privacy laws to consider. Um, or in a hotel, you know, you can't just put, you know, cameras in the room and observe people, right? Um, so again, there are advantages and disadvantages of that is that, wow, you can really observe real behavior, right? When people don't know they're being watched, you can really study interesting stuff like what happens in an elevator, how people position themselves in an elevator when it's too crowded, right? The spacing effect. Um, but then there are downsides of that, is that you can't really control much of that environment. Or you're limited by what you can see. And you can also have what's called observer bias, right? That maybe what is being observed fits with the narrative of what the observer wants to find, okay? And it may not be as objective. All right. So an example, a good example of naturalistic observation is Jane Goodall observing chimpanzees in the wild, right? Um, sometimes you can do it. The best way to do that is do it from a distance, but then you get less data. But if you study up close, you get better data. But then again, the disadvantages is that the chimps know that they're being watched and their behavior may change. So you see how there's a advantages and disadvantages of every kind of technique. And the next we'll talk about are surveys. And you've seen these surveys all the time, right? when you're in your social media or you get an email or text message would you take a survey when you're a customer of someone you know you get a survey every time they deliver something from amazon right and the great part about surveys is that they can gather a large amount of data relatively easily right now the downside is that you may get some inaccuracies right where people maybe fill in the wrong bubble, click the wrong choice, or they lie, you know, what's your age? I'll put 105, you know, just to mess with people. So there are some downsides to that. That's why when you see political polls, they'll have an accuracy or error range of plus or minus certain percentage because they're trying to guess, well, it's only accurate because, you know, some parts of the surveys we're going to assume are not reliable up to this percentage, right? And statistically, they can f figure that out, okay? So, but what's interesting about surveys is, is that if you take a statistics course later on or a research course later on, is that it's actually quite challenging to create a good survey because you have the word, uh, you have to create these sentences and questions in a way where 
you you have to be sure that a hundred people reading that same sentence understands it the same way, right? So if they're rating something on a one to five scale, or it's a yes no question, or a multiple choice question, if you have a question that's kind of vague, and say, like, well, what do they mean by that? You know, it's not specific enough, or written in a confusing way, and a quarter of the people just sort of guess because they don't understand the question, or they answer the opposite way than intended. Then you have to throw out that question; it's no good. So there's quite an art to creating questions that are reliable, so that you know that. Or let's call it valid. In statistics, you would call it valid, so that a person reading this question will understand it as, "Oh, you're asking about this." Then you ask ten other people, "What's this question asking?" It's asking about this, and they all agree. Then that is a good question. All righty. Okay, so sometimes researchers can do research without people. That is, they use archives, you know, and that's basically referring to data that might be online or、uh, medical charts that have been sitting in a basement somewhere, and you want to find certain patterns in that research from 1950 or 1970, and you can do that.、Um, so there, so doing research to look for patterns it does not necessarily require live interviews with people. You can use archival data. Now, longitudinal and cross-sectional research. Usually, when we're studying a population of people, let's say you want to study、um, how people、uh, are changing over time. Let's say a twenty-year period, right? In terms of let's say IQ tests. Well, one way to do that, an easier way to do that, might be to get a group of twenty-year-olds, give them the same test, another group of twenty-five-year-olds, a different group of thirty-year-olds, right? And you can do that all within the same few months. Find just different groups of people that match those match those age groups, okay? And then you can sort of draw a graph. And what do you think the downside of that is? Well, what if that group of thirty-year-olds was really different somehow than this group of twenty-year-olds? What if there's a difference in how they grew up in a generation, right? And what if they're exposed to social media and one group grew up with, without smartphones and all that, right? Would that affect the results? So that is called a cross-sectional. Type of study, where you're cutting across this length of time and picking groups of people out, and then trying to make an assumption that well, when someone grows from age twenty to age sixty, this is what the pattern is. Okay, so again, that's more doable. But longitudinal studies might be better, right? You get the same group of people and you somehow follow them for forty years, right? Then you're getting really rich data of what actually does happen. To a given person, when you measure their behavior or thinking over that time period, but the downside is that well, you might lose people. You know, people move. You lose their contact information. You might lose subjects because they die, right? Or what if the researcher dies? Right? You're doing a 40-year study and you start at age 60. Well, you know, that's not going to work out. Okay, so there are some strengths and weaknesses and. A researcher, when they want to conduct a study like that to look at something that happens over a long period of time, they have to choose what's more doable: cross-sectional or longitudinal. Okay, so you can use your own memory scheme to try to remember these terms. I don't really believe in just memorizing for the sake of memorizing, but if you think about the word longitudinal, right, it kind of makes sense that you're looking at the same person over a long period of time. 
Whereas a cross section is like you're slicing a loaf of bread, you know, you're just taking this slice here, another slice of age group of people over here, and you're comparing those over time. Okay, now the last one, one of the last concepts I want to talk about within this particular lecture is correlational research. Okay. And by the way, all of these um, methods that we're talking about in this particular lecture are called descriptive methods, right? Descriptive methods. And descriptive means to describe, right? All of these are methods that help us to understand what's happening just through observation, just by giving people a survey, okay? Um, looking at a case study. There's really not a whole lot of intervention. You're not giving people medicine. You're not placing them in an awkward place. You're not manipulating things, okay? So, so correlational research is very similar. Think about what the word relation is, right? That's the root word in correlational. Is basically see how two or more variables or things are connected to one another. Are they related in some, some way, right? Um, is the temperature related to our emotions, okay? Um, is taking vitamin C related to better health? Does it reduce cancer, okay? Um, there are all kinds of things that we can measure in our daily lives to see whether or not there's a relationship. You know, um, is a one-parent household more effective than a two-parent household in terms of raising their children, right? That's That could be a research question, right? You can gather information using correlations. Um, now, one thing, even though we're not really going deep into statistics in this class and the mathematical formulas, but one way to measure how two or more variables are related is by this statistic called the correlational coefficient. It's just a number. It falls on a number line between negative 1 to positive 1. So you'll never have a correlation of 1 point something. You'll never have a correlation of negative 1 point something or negative 2, right? It's going to be a decimal number between 0 and 1 or 0 and negative 1, like 0 0.5, 0 0.7, 0 0.2, negative 0.7 negative 0.3 okay it's going to be a fraction all right so one way to understand this number is that if you get a positive correlation that means the number is positive okay when you have a positive number it means that as one variable increases the other variable increases so the example in the book that's really kind of simple here is height and weight it's usually a positive correlation. The lower one's height, the less one weighs. So in this graph, it's called a scatter plot. Let's assume there are 30 dots here. That's a measurement of 30 people. There's going to be a pattern of these dots. And when this pattern of dots flows in the upper right-hand fashion, like a swarm of bees flying to the northeast, okay, in other words, there's a the, the dots form a pattern. That's usually a positive correlation, meaning the as one variable goes up, the other variable goes up. Similarly, as one variable goes down, the other variable goes down. Lower height, lower weight. As height increases, weight increases. Okay. Now, that's not true for every single person in there. There might be a dot way over here somewhere. Maybe someone uh, who is very, very short weighs a lot. Right. The dot might be over here in the lower right-hand corner of the graph. 
but those tend to be outliers, right? If the majority of the dots form a pattern of some kind, right, then you know the correlation uh, might be meaningful, even before you do the math. Now, a negative correlation is just a negative number, right? So a negative number in a graph is going to look like um, a swarm of bees flying downward to the right of the graph. So it's going to start off high in the upper left-hand quadrant and fly downward. Okay, all the dots will form that kind of pattern. So the example in the book they use here is hours of sleep compared to tiredness or fatigue, right? So the more hours of sleep, the less tired someone is. Okay, those are going to be the dots high in the upper left-hand corner. Those in the middle are going to be having a moderate amount of sleep, and they're going to be somewhat tired, right? The extremely tired people are the ones who are sleeping less, okay? And that's a negative correlation. So that means as one variable goes up, the other variable goes down. So one way to phrase this is that as hours of sleep go up, tiredness goes down, okay? Or you can say the more tired someone is, then the less hours of sleep they have. You can replace tiredness with grades, right? And uh, if you do, what kind of correlation would you expect? Chances are you might expect a positive correlation, right? The greater amount of sleep, the higher the grades, right? As sleep goes up, grades go up, okay? So that's an example of a positive correlation. Don't think of the word positive as good. That's not always the case. It's just explaining how two things are related. The word positive does not refer to good. The word negative does not refer to bad. It just means that it's a negative number is discussing the pattern of the relationship, right? So the third example, hours of sleep, not really related to shoe size. The dots are everywhere. There's no pattern, right? So that means that this number itself is probably going to be close to zero, okay? A positive correlation means that a number is probably pretty big and close to positive one. A negative correlation means that it's a negative number and it's going to be fairly close to negative one, a kind of a, uh, a small number or big unit number okay like negative seven negative six negative five it's considered a large correlation but in the negative direction okay i know it's kind of confusing but just remember that a positive correlation describes how two variables are related whatever those two things are whatever kind of test example you're going to get on an exam a negative correlation describes how those two variables are related going in a different direction different pattern and the number itself means it's a negative number. Positive correlations represented by a positive correlation. Now the size of the actual number itself, whether it's a 0.1 or 0.9, let me use those two examples, okay? And it doesn't matter if it's a positive or negative sign. If it's a 0.1, that means it's a low correlation, right? It's very close to zero. The dots are probably gonna be everywhere on the graph, right? It's not significant, okay? A 0.9 is a very high number in real life. So a 0.9, whether it's positive or negative, is very significant. That means you're really going to see a pattern that stands out in whatever it is the scientist is studying. Okay? So correlational studies can be easily done. Whatever question you have about college students in general, you can actually conduct a survey, punch these numbers into the graph like this, like use Excel, right? and then use another program to calculate the actual correlational coefficient, or use mathematical formulas and do it by hand. Okay? And then you get on a number, and you will have to make sense of that number. So these are very challenging test questions that I will give you. I might just throw out a number, 
okay, this is what the scientist is studying. Um, they're passing out surveys on campus, and they want to know how much people make and what their grades are. Okay, they're getting their GPA and their annual income. It's two numbers. That's it. And you can fill out a graph like this after you get a hundred surveys back. And let's say that you get a plus 0.75, right? What do the results mean? Or you get a negative 0.20. What do the results mean? Okay. And I'm going to leave that open for you to think about. Just think about that example and those two numbers. Okay. You're measuring their income and their grades. Let's call it GPA. So we have two numbers. Income can be low to high, right? All these numbers in between, right? Do and a dollar amount. And then GPA from 0 to 4.0, okay? And let's say that you got two, two different survey results. One came back, one campus had a plus 0.75, and the other campus had a negative 0 0.20, right? What does that tell you about your study? Okay. Uh, I feel bad. Maybe I should just tell you. Okay, so just pause, figure that out for yourself. And then after you click pause, I'm going to tell you what those two numbers mean. Okay, you ready? Okay, here's what it means. The plus 0.75, let's look. There's a positive number. So what does that mean? It's a positive correlation. As one variable goes up, the other goes up, right? So as income goes up, grades go up. So you can see the dots flying from lower left to upper right. That's the pattern. 0.75, gee, that's a pretty big number. On the number line, that's that's getting close to one. That's that's not bad. As past 0 0.5 is definitely a big correlation, which means that it's significant. It's not a coincidence that you found this number. That maybe income level has a lot to do with um, grades. Okay, now negative 0.2, negative number means that is means that these variables are moving in opposite directions. As income goes up, grades go down. As grades go up income goes down okay so the more you make the worse your grades are the less you make the better your grades are okay so the poorer students are actually doing better in school okay well we don't know if that's actually true or not i'm making up these numbers by the way so that's the pattern now let's look at the point two is that a big or small number that's a relatively small number on the number line chances are it's close to zero so the if there is a pattern it's very weak so chances are you have to do more research, okay? All right, now this is something that students have memorized over the years about correlations is the statement that correlation does not imply or indicate causation, okay? Now, why is that? If we go back to the previous slide, right? Just because you measure two things that are occurring, you cannot based on these numbers, based on how you collected the information, you cannot determine that one caused the other. So going back to our example, we can never say that making more money will cause someone to make better grades. Okay? Um, because in reality, this type of study cannot prove that, cannot show a cause and effect relationship. It's only showing that they are related in some way, but not how. Okay, so in reality, it could be that A causes B. Maybe in reality, even though we can't measure it, making giving students more money or having a higher income leads to better grades, and you can come up with all the reasons why. But if you use a correlational study, the opposite could be true. 
maybe at maybe better grades cause higher income right you could predict that those better students are getting better jobs right? even if they're part-time jobs okay now on this PowerPoint you see this term here confounding variable remember a variable is just anything that we're measuring here these a B's and C's okay let's call a confounding variable a C yeah what is something else that is causing a to increase and that same thing is causing B to increase what if we call C a personality trait like hardiness Right? how persistent someone is now we didn't measure that in our study we just measured income and grades but what if in reality underneath the real truth is that students who are hardy right they don't give up easily they work the hardest are the ones who are gonna have greater income and being hardy is gonna lead them to have better grades that is not that income causes good grades or good grades causes better income but maybe it's a third factor right that affected both variables so then it gave us the false impression that the changes came from a or b but it was c right so a scientist has to always keep that into account that this is a weakness of this method it's not useless right we know that smoking is related to cancer and that likely smoking does cause emphysema and cancer but the best that a scientist can say is may cause that's why you see that in the warning labels of cigarettes because you cannot directly say that smoking caused cancer to happen even though it's highly likely because the correlations are very strong but what could be a confounding variable maybe genetics maybe someone smokes all their life and they're fine but the vast majority of people if we go back to looking at scatter plots okay smoking and cancer is a positive relationship the more you smoke the more cancer you're gonna get are you really gonna say risk your life on the fact that you might be one of these dots on the upper left hand corner that you smoke a lot but you have less disease right that's a gamble that's why in the medical community anything that can cause a disease is called a risk factor they don't know for sure how it affect you but the overall pattern of the data suggests that the more you do this or the less if you do something it will increase or decrease your risk of that particular disease so does that make sense okay all right so that's the example I was using there so correlation does not imply causation and that's the reason why okay because we're only observing things that are happening we cannot tell what caused the other to happen when you only observe and collect information the way we do for correlations okay now this leads to illusory correlations that is correlations that we assume are true but actually they're not really true okay um, and oftentimes uh, people will go too far in thinking that two things that happen together must one must have caused the other to happen okay uh, and sometimes people can in their mind create false correlations when things are happening okay so that's called an illusory correlation uh, for example the textbook talks about some people think that a full moon makes people act really weird right? because maybe people are acting weird on a full moon day so they think the two somehow are related when scientifically 
not able to prove that. Okay, um, so that's called an, an illusory correlation. And having these kinds of illusory correlation can lead to other kinds of consequences in terms of our attitudes about people, right? That homeless, homeless people are lazy and they don't work hard enough, right? That's why they're homeless. They deserve to be homeless. Well, is that backed up by the data? No, not really, okay? But since homelessness is combined uh, with the character, we associate it with the character of laziness, then suddenly that becomes an, an, a correlation for a lot of people. And it becomes a philosophy of how they judge people about whether someone's successful or not successful. It's because, you know, this philosophy that, well, if you work hard, you deserve it. You didn't work hard, you deserve to be homeless. And let me finish with confirmation bias, right? You may have heard this a lot. And, and this is really exacerbated or made worse by social media and the algorithms, right? When you click like on something in Facebook, you're more likely to get similar kinds of information fed to you in your newsfeed. And we watched in a documentary recently that if you do a Google search for a specific subject, the answers you get in the autofill will be different depending on your geographical location, right? So if we already have this tendency to ignore evidence that disproves our own ideas and only accept evidence when we see it that supports our beliefs right you know then that's kind of a dangerous place to be mentally that we're going to be very stuck in certain belief patterns because we're only seeing or think that we see evidence that supports that belief okay so if you look at today's politics or at any era really where it gets pretty much black or white or a or b and there's no gray area in between because a lot of confirmation bias is happening and we're not looking at the evidence objectively. We see what we want to see. Okay. All right. This is a pretty long lecture. And uh, let me know if you have any questions. And that's it. I'll talk to you in the next video. Hey there, thanks for listening to this podcast today. Can you do me a big favor? Um, just so that this podcast gets heard by more students of psychology and other people interested in the field, uh, go to Apple Podcasts and put a little rating there if you like and uh, a brief uh, review, okay? And you can also contact me directly using the links in the description, whether it's Twitter or email, with any suggestions or feedback that you may have to make the show better. And uh, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I can add them. And if you want to support me by buying me a coffee, the methods are listed in the description as well. Again, thanks and have a great day.